Welcome to the New Life Millbrook Weekly Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about this podcast or other resources, please visit nlmillbrook.com. Well, good morning, everybody. I'm happy to be here this morning. I hope that you are as well. If not, you should just get happy. So uh, God has you here for a purpose. He's got you here on, for a reason. And that reason is to uh, see his will accomplished. I'm, I'm not a big fan of trying to make the scriptures all about me uh, because they are all about him. Right. Amen? I, I think a love, a love, a love, a love. Enough in my life is about me and I shouldn't make his holy scriptures about me. They are all about Jesus and what he has done. The beautiful part is, is that what he has done is also uh, transferred down to us for what we should be doing as well. And today, we pick up where we have left off, and that is an Acts. For those of you who are, are just now joining us online, or you're on our podcast, or you're here in person, uh, we are in Acts, the book of Acts, um, and today we're going to be in Acts chapter 6, um, and uh, let's do a quick recap of five chapters that's taken us 10 weeks to get through, roughly, um, and, uh, and we're going to dive in. So far in Acts chapter 1, 2, and 3, we see God pouring out his spirit uh, unprecedentedly on, on his church. We see signs, wonders, and miracles. And really, in the first four chapters, everything is just going fantastic. Uh, even the, the, the point of persecution that they were beginning to have was more of a scolding, if you will, to stop, but God kept pouring them out. Um, in Acts chapter 5, we see things escalate a little bit uh, with uh, a couple named Ananias and Sapphira who decided to do their own thing and to lie against the Holy Spirit. Not against Peter and James and not against John, but against the Holy Spirit is what it says. And uh, they dropped dead. Imagine you coming to church and all of a sudden they're pulling out body bags because the holiness of God was so powerful and it couldn't be. You know, can I be honest with you? Uh, while that sounds really cool, I don't think I'd go back to that church again. <laughs> Why? Because I'm a messed up individual and God knows there's a solid chance I forgot something. You ever did that? Yeah, I grew up in church, and, and, and I would be on my way to church repenting of every sin I could possibly think of because I didn't want the person who was somewhat prophetic to call me out in front of God and everybody else. And so I'm driving down the road repenting of sins, and then I make that famous, God, if there's something I forgot, cover that one too. <laughs> on the off chance that Miss Elaine would be like, hey, Pete, how's you? Oh, my gosh, I knew where you were Friday night. I'm like, oh, of course she does. Here we go. No, it, it, was, that, it was that sense, that, that, that the angst, that fear, and... And what's crazy is, is that it says that the church grew. Can I tell you, because holiness of God, while it's something to completely be revered for, is nothing to be scared of. He tells us to be holy as he is holy. In other words, there's not this unattainable relationship with God that in his presence I'm going to drop dead. In his presence is fullness of joy. Perfected love casts out fear. So, let me say this. If you are ever finding yourself terrified of going to church because of what God may do to you, I feel like that might be a good sign the enemy is working through fear, not God through love. So they dropped it. <laughs> and 
it was craziness. And then all of a sudden, more persecution happens through the church. Peter is again arrested. He escapes from jail through an, an, a miraculous angelic visitation. As soon as he escapes, he doesn't run for his life. He just goes probably just a few hundred yards to keep doing what he was doing beforehand. They arrest him again. They threaten to kill him, and they threaten to do all of these things. And, and we found out last week that there was a young man named Saul of Tarsus that was in there hearing everything that was going on. We know later on in Acts that Saul actually cast a vote that day to kill the disciples, but he was vetoed. And now we're finding ourselves in Acts chapter 6 with this tension that's building in the church. I, I do need to say that just because we are the body of Christ doesn't exempt us from human issues. If you've ever been in church longer than 30 minutes, you know there's going to be human issues in church. And we're going to see this right here. Now, in the, those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, that's an important part. They weren't adding, they were multiplying. Because when it comes to following God's plan and God's rhythm of life, he doesn't want you to go numerically adding one by one by one. He's wanting multiplication because his word is supposed to work exponentially. Pastor Allen was just talking about sowing in a time of famine because sowing in a time of famine following God's plan does not make sense. But when you follow God's plan, one plus one equals 100 for some reason, and I haven't figured out his math, but I'm not complaining. In this case, the church is multiplying. We're going to read the first seven verses here today, and I think that's about as far as we're going to get today. I had all intentions of doing the entire chapter because I'm like, in my head, as I'm preparing my notes, I love the book of Acts. I'm like, oh, that's Stephen's chapter. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll magnify Stephen. We're not even going to get to Stephen today. Just going to be honest with you. So, first seven verses. Now, in those days, the, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there was a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists. When the, because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Complaining in the church. There's a novel idea. <laughs> it happens. Yeah. I've been doing this for a couple of weeks. And one thing that I do know is that in a couple of weeks, you'll find people to complain about something. I love this, that... This is actually listed in the early days of the church, which means, Mike, I don't feel like we're all doing something wrong when people complain. Because complaining is a human condition. <laughs> They're complaining the Hebrews by the Hellenists, and, and we'll go through some backstory here in a little bit, but, but let me e e express to you what's happening. The enemy, the devil, if it will be more, more blatant, is a fantastic strategist. Well, one thing we have to realize is that we are caught up in a war. It's not a war versus good and evil. It's not even a war versus God and the devil. There would be no war if God got involved. In fact, when the enemy did revolt, rebel, God sent another angel and it says, the Lord rebuke you and he cast down. So God's not even needing to get up into this fight. The reality that we're going through is not necessarily even a war between uh, good and evil. It's actually between our yes and our no. The script has already been written. God is going to win. It is already done. 
what we decide to do and how we decide to partner in life is what's important right now. Jesus has come. He has died on the cross. He's not coming to die again. He's coming to pick up a bride. We all know this in, in, in the book of Revelation. But what's taking place now is a war that's going on. And the enemy is a great strategist because he knows humans. Is anybody here over the age of 70? 75? Can I get an 80? Okay. Let me ask you this. When you were 30 years old, when you look back at your life, are there things you look back at and go, man, if I know what I know now, things would be different? Yeah? Yes. I turned 40 in July, and I look back and go, man, if I knew my 40th, I'd do things differently. How about this? Do you think that if you lived another 100 years, you would look back at 80 and go, if I would have known now, I would have done things differently then. How about this? Your perception of life changes the older you get. Can we all agree on that? Dramatically. Things that used to be a big deal in my life no longer are a big deal the older I get. Things that I thought I have all the time in the world for are now a pressing issue in my life. And here's what you need to understand. The enemy has been here since day one. Time to him is a luxury that you don't have. The reality is, once you have died and are in glory, he will still be here operating on the earth. This is what's going to happen. So what we can do is understand that he has thousands upon thousands of case history of humanity at his fingertips. So now when he's looking at a mat, He's not this guy that just met you last week. He understands the human condition. And that's why on a lot of times in my life, I find myself out of nowhere being tempted. I'm doing good. I'm doing great. And all of a sudden, it's like, where did that come from? He knows the human condition. And he knows more about you than you probably know about you. And so what's taking place is he starts off with a great strategy. And that strategy is this. The early church shows up. Let's make them a social pariah. I'm going to get everything and everyone against them to put pressure on them to be just like everyone else because it's worked for thousands of years. Peer pressure isn't new. It's something that has been going on since the beginning. And it's continued to happen. Israelite would go and leave Egypt. Then the nations would peer pressure them to serving their gods. Be like one of us. Be cool like us. Modernize yourself like us. And okay, we'll be like them. And, and he time and time and time again, the Israelites would fall. Well, then peer pressure didn't work for the other church. So he goes, how about this? How about not peer pressure, physical threats and direct life-taking? I'll threaten to take your very life itself. I get that will get them. They'll cave then. I'll beat them. I'll threaten them. I'll, I'll do everything I can because humanity loves comfort. They love to feel like their skin is still attached to their flesh, to their bones, and, and they don't like to have pain. Can I tell you? 
There's nothing worse right now than walking out of a store and you have to find your car in the heat. That's the worst right now. I was in Louisiana a couple of weeks ago and I seriously went, it might be worth getting that handicap ticket. Just that extra 30 feet, I don't know what that bill is, but it might be worth it. The heat coming off the ground is ridiculous. We love comfort. So it makes sense that if I threaten your life, if I threaten your health, if I threaten your kids, if I threaten all the things that you care about, that you would cave. The disciples didn't cave. Hmm. So then he does a third option. I'll infiltrate them with fake spirituality. So he sends people who can, can talk good and look good and do all the right things. And, and what we can do is we can get them to compromise a little bit. This is where Ananias and Sapphira slide in. Because here's the reality. Good is the enemy of best. Because if the enemy can get you to compromise a little bit, he can spoil the whole bunch. And the idea that they would have money and they would give wealth, and Peter should have said, thank you, and been quiet, and allow it to infiltrate. But he looks and goes, you have lied against the Spirit. Because can I tell you, if you came to me and you said, hey, Pete, we're going to give $20,000 to the church, but the Holy Spirit told me in your private time, y'all decided $50,000, reality is if I look at you and go, hey, where's the other 30? The solid chance is that you're going to take the whole 20 away too. Yep. And an eyes and Sapphire could have done that. But they stood firm on what right is right no matter what it costs us. So now we're finding ourselves. So peer pressure and isolation, physical harm didn't work, infiltrating with fake spirituality didn't work. Here we go. I'll do the old tactic. I'll get them to divide themselves. Gossip, complaining, strife, and envy are a tool of the enemy to do nothing more than to divide and conquer. We see this all the way at the beginning in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, the serpent slides up to Eve, convinces her to eat, she convinces Adam to eat. And it says, and they heard the Lord walking, and they were afraid. And God cries out, Adam, Adam, where are you? And he says, I heard you walking, and I was afraid because I was naked. And God says, who told you you were naked? I mean, something's changed. Adam. Falls before God and says, oh God, I'm so sorry. I repent before you. No. Adam goes, it's the woman you gave me. She goes, oh, it's the serpent that did it to me. The idea here is I'm not the issue. You're the issue. And if I can continue to create gossip, strife, and envy in our church, I can continue to break you apart. Because if you're unified, there's nothing that can stop you. But if we can make a bunch of little islands inside of one big building, then they'll never connect and never be powerful. That's the idea of denominations. It's deny. It's multiple nations. But if the church could ever unite on a cause, there's nothing that would ever stop them. I don't care if you're Baptist or Methodist or Presbyterian, Pentecostal, Catholic, AME. I don't care what you are, PDQ. You can be whatever you want to be. 
But one thing has to remain, and that is this, is that the unity in the body of Christ is more important than my small-minded dogma on insignificant ideas. What's happening right now is the Hellenist uh, Christians and the Hebrew Christians are having issues. The, the Hebrew Christians, they, they, they were born there. They lived there. They follow the traditions. They're from Judah. They're, they're from Jerusalem. They're there. The Hellenists, they're still Jewish, 100% Jewish, but they understand Greek culture. They primarily speak Greek. They have Greek styles, and they, they change their haircut, and they listen to different music, and, and, and they walk a little different. The traditionalists are like, it should be our way. Keep it the same way. It's what worked for Moses. It's what worked for Abraham. Keep it the same. And then the Hellenists are like, hey, guys, like we love the same God, but I want it to be kind of cool. I want it to be more Greek style. And, and yeah, we love God, and we serve him, but I like our clothes. I like our fashion. I like our stuff. And what's happening is neither one of them are right because my preference on my hair my clothes my music and my car is not a spiritual issue nor should it be today when somebody asks me Pete what kind of music do you like yes I have the most bipolar playlist on Spotify you could possibly imagine What kind of movies do you like? Depends on the day. What about your clothes? I will go from looking like complete trash and flip-flops, a long pair of old and one basketball shorts and a wife beater to a three-piece suit in 30 minutes or less. I, I like who I am. I like what I am. It is what it is. And if you like your hair neat and combed to the side, or you like to have big, long hair, or if you like to have your music loud, or you like to rock classical music, or you like to watch great, funny movies, or you're more of an action flick, or it doesn't matter, and I don't understand why we're letting small, trivial things divide the church. In the scheme of life, ask yourself this one big question, how important is this issue? Because here's what's taking place. There is a perception of a fault here. Isn't that interesting that the vast majority of the times that when people get offended, it's perception of an offense more than a real thing. What's taking place is you've got over 5,000 people currently in the church. They didn't have QuickBooks. There was no database software to, to verify what's going on. But what happened was that the Hellenists perceived that they were being treated wrongly. And so they began to complain. There's no statement here. The disciples go, oh my goodness, you're 100% correct. We have done y'all wrong. Because what's happening is the vast majority of the apostles at this time would be Hebrew Christians. In other words, they were the power at B. And the ones that weren't in power had a chip on their shoulder. Oh, come on. And because I don't have a voice and I have a perception that I'm being done wrong, I want to complain. And this is what's taking place in churches across America and across the world today. The, are, there, are there bad pastors? Sure. Are there bad Christians? Sure. But I can tell you without 
really blinking twice, the vast majority of the time, and I'm a human and I've offended people and I've done it before and I'm, I promise you I'll do it again, but the vast majority of the time, I don't wake up and go, I wonder if I can just tick off Shonda today. Sorry, Daryl, I do want to tick off Shonda. Uh, I, the, the vast majority of the time, I don't wake up with this intention of just, I want to watch the world burn. Who can I tick off? But you know what? There has been multiple times in my life that somebody has been offended at me because they perceived something about me. Have you ever had a bad day? Have you ever had a bad day and your face showed it? Have you ever had a good day and your face still looked like you had a bad day? Every day. <laughs> I, I turned, I mean, golly. Yeah. You know, I've had great days, but I've had a lot on my mind. And I unfortunately perpetually have a scowl on my face as if I'm angry. In fact, Jessica has looked at me when uh, I'm, I'm playing the piano and I'm in the zone. I'm in worship. I'm in, I'm in deep in his presence. She's like, dude, you look miserable. I'm like, that was a great service. She's like, tell your face. Because <laughs> from my seat, you looked angry. Like, was it EJ? Was it you? Was it Tom? Who, who are you mad at? I'm like, I'm not mad at anybody. I'm, it was great. So now every once in a while, I'm just like, I just like, <laughs> I come to and I just smile because I'm like, I don't know what's going on. But the idea that I had a scowl on my face has offended people because they, they may have even said yes. And then on top of it, I, I, I unfortunately am addicted to my AirPods. And they're small. And when I'm walking away from you and you say something, and if I've got music or I'm on the phone, you can ask EJ today. She had a whole conversation with me. I didn't know she was talking to me. I was on the other line just having... I guess it was a co-in-synced conversation. She would ask a question at the same time Jessica in my ears is asking a question and I'm answering and he's just like, oh, that's so great. And all of a sudden I realized, I'm like, what is happening? I, I thought she had Tourette's. I didn't know what was going on. <laughs> so you add the scowl on my face and the fact that I may have music or I'm on the phone and I can't believe how rude he is. He is so mean. He wouldn't even acknowledge me when I said hi. And now all of a sudden, Pastor Pete is a mean individual and he doesn't like people. You, you perceived something that wasn't a reality. You didn't have the full context. In our lives, a lot of times, in our marriages, and, the enemy is always looking for a way. You know, he doesn't sleep. He's not clocking out at 5 o'clock and be like, y'all have fun for the rest of the night. See y'all at 8 a.m. tomorrow. So he's continually looking for an opportunity. That look of, what do you think she meant by that? Why do you think he looked at you that way? All that hard work you did, and yet, not even a thank you. You went and got her this? You got her flowers? You bought her lunch and she didn't even just fall at your feet and thank you? Man, I'm, you, you, might, you might deserve better than this. Can, can I tell you this is what starts? It's the small, insignificant thoughts that create massive destruction later on. And this is why the Bible says, take every thought captive. 
You know that verse? The idea here with taking every thought captive is the idea of an Aquaman trident and you grab whatever that thought is and you pin it to the wall and inspect it before you release it. Is that a God thought or is that a destructive thought? So many lives, friendships, marriages, job, boss and employee relationships would be so much better if I would just ask that simple question, is this a God thought? Because the next thing I'm going to ask you when you come to my office is, well, how is that working out for you? She gave me that look. I said, you know what? Fine, I'll give you a look too. We haven't spoken in four years. (laughs) You know, typically what happens when it comes to an issue in your marriage or an issue with your friendships is a lot of times it's not this big, huge thing. It's a small thought that leads to another thought that eventually leads to a small action. I didn't get the response that I wanted, which leads to another thought, which leads to an action that's a little bit bigger. Still didn't get the response. All the while, the opposing party is like, why is she doing this or why is he doing that? Fine, you want to flex? I'll flex. And then we're having this who's going to be bigger, who's going to be stronger, who's going to be more stubborn. Because for some reason, we think there's a trophy at the end of all this. I get the stubborn award today. She's going to tap out and say, ah, good game, man. I'm proud of you. I almost quit, but you kept going. You're like, I know, I almost quit too, but I had one more day in me, but you kept pushing. No, because the enemy wants destruction in your life, and the best way he can do that is to get you in opposition of the one that you're supposed to be connected with. Is it okay we're here for a little bit? Because, can I tell you, if I can get you upset at the person that you do life with every day, the woman or the man that you know would die for you, the person that you know would get two or three jobs just to make you happy, if I can get you into a thought that would create opposition with them, how much easier is it to get me into a thought that would create opposition with a God that I don't even see? Because if I'm at a spot in my life where I'm, continually dealing with the spirit of offense, I promise you there's a spirit of offense vertically as well. He let me down. He didn't show up. I prayed he didn't answer. I gave, I tithed. I'm not seeing financial blessings. I, my, 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 my mom is sick. My dad is sick. My kids are this or my kids are that. Whatever it is, and God, you didn't, you didn't fulfill your end of the bargain, and now there's an opposition. I'll come to church, and I'll clap. I'll lift one hand up, but you and I aren't okay. You think that's not real? How many times can you go in your, in your marriage and you can say, I love you too, and not even think about what you're saying? The power of an I love you is powerful, and yet we can go into church just as easily and just raise our hands, go through the motion, do our thing, and, and now God and I are spiritual roommates like many of your marriages are. Because an offense has taken hold, and we're grumbling and complaining. This is what's taking place in this church. There's a perception of an issue. And instead of somebody just going up and saying, hey, I feel this way, or I'm going through this, and can we have a conversation? The enemy is trying to weasel his way in. You know what's sad about opposition or complaining and, 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 and all that fun stuff is this, is that after a long period of time, we don't even remember the why. All I know is the who. 
Isn't that the crazy part? I don't remember why I'm mad at you. I just remember I'm mad at you, so I'm going to stay being mad at you. James 4 says, What causes quarrel and f- causes fights, fights amongst you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within yourself? Verse 3 says, You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. Verse 7 says, Submit yourself to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded men. Here's a verse that no one likes. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Humble yourselves and let him exalt you. I'm not willing to say I didn't do anything wrong. They did this and they did that. Okay. You know, you can be mad. And you may have every right to be mad. And you may have every right to be offended. But let me ask you this simple question that my dad taught me years and years ago. How's that working out for you? Well, I did this and I did that. How's that working out for you? I got mad and I kicked the, the, the lawnmower. How's that working out for you? You taught that lawnmower a lesson, didn't you, bud? That person driving down the road screaming to cut you off and you're throwing your hands up. You know, I bet you changed their life. And they're like, I never thought of it that way. But because you gave me one of your five fingers, I'm like, I'm coming to church today. I'm going to get saved because of what? No. The person sitting next to you hearing you scream and lose their mind is paying the price of somebody else. And this is what takes place. When I live my life full of offense and not forgiving one another, the people that are closest to me deal with the issues more than the person that offended me. I have no idea where I'm at. (laughs) Ephesians 6 tells me this. Put on the full armor of God that you can stand strong against the devil's schemes. And I know this is so true because this is what the enemy is continually doing. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood but against principalities and powers who is continually doing one of two things, separating you from God or separating you from each other. That's the goal there. The enemy cannot kill you. If he could, you'd be dead. But he can get you to a place to convince yourself and to bite his fruit of offense to kill your relationships with God and your relationships with everybody else. Gossip and strife is a tool the enemy uses to cause separation. And you may look at me and go, well, Pete, what I have to be mad about is truth. It's true. And that's the reality. Not every gossip issue is a lie. Not every time that somebody opens their mouth and says, did you hear about Miss Elaine this? Did you hear about Matt that? Did you hear about Ira this or that? Is a lie. But one thing I do know is this, is that when you're coming to me to talk about somebody else, truth or not, you're doing it not out of love. And you are being nothing more than a carrier of the devil's schemes. All you are doing is agreeing with him and doing his work for you, for him. 
And now he doesn't have to deal with a thought. He can deal with a real person. I didn't have a thought about an EJ. Elaine told me about an EJ. Now I'm really mad. And as we're walking through this issue right now with the Jewish culture that's taken place, is there's a perceived issue with each other. And what's happening here, and I think it's in verse 2, it says this, that was verse 1, a complaint arose in verse 2, then the 12, uh, that their widows were getting neglected in the daily distribution. Now what is this? So what would take place at the temple is that they would have people who would come and they would give alms, they would give to the poor, they would give to the widows. The priest then would then distribute who needed what, when, and where. But what's happening is, is at this season of life, these Christians or Christ followers still consider themselves Jewish. If you went to a Peter at this time and say, so this new religion you've got, he would say, no, 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 I'm Jewish. This is a fulfillment of my Jewishness, is the Messiah. But what was taking place to flex their muscles a little more is the temple now obviously banned Christians from receiving from the distributions. Oh, Miss Widow, you want to go and serve Jesus, I hear. You know, we've been paying your bills. We've been giving you money and food. Well, if you're not one of us, then you don't get our resources. That's an added pressure. It escalates a little bit more. So every single woman and, the pover- and those who were impoverished who became a Christian willingly said, I'll give up my meal ticket to follow the one. So now the church themselves is having to rally around each other to help those because they've been ostracized, they've been demonized. They've been separated and marginalized. And so now they're saying, well, if you are going to isolate us, we will gather around each other and take care of one another. Yeah. We can see this in um, 1 Timothy. If you have a Bible, I know, Lauren, I'm throwing this at you real quick. 1 Timothy, chapter 5. It's interesting because the Bible is very clear that not all who ask for something deserve to get something. In 1 Timothy, chapter 5, you're going to read scripturally who they need to give alms to, money to, issues going on. When somebody gave to the church, this is the criteria that they would go through before they would receive anything. Verse 1, do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father, younger men as brethren, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with all purity. Honor the widows who are really widows. So now we're going to see what they determine what a widow is. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety at home and to repay their parents. Mom, don't let dad die. For this is good and acceptable before God. Now she who is really a widow and left alone trusts in God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. So right now they're looking at it saying a godly woman that is a widow in this case is a woman in church. 
She's a woman that is continuing in, in prayer. She's a godly person. Verse 6, but she who lives in pleasure is dead while she lives. And these things command that they may be blameless. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. In other words, if you have kids, and I'm not pointing any fingers, and I'm not looking at anybody but my parents right now. If you have kids, and you're a widow, and your kids are refusing to help you, they're worse than an unbeliever. That got quiet. Remember that? So I said, you got to let dad live a little longer. All right. There's, this, there's, there's a line here of honoring. And I love what the beginning says. They gave to you for your whole life. You can give to them at the end of theirs. But I want my boat. I want my luxury. Some, we'll let somebody else. You got to remember in this time of life, there is no social security. There's no Medicaid. There's no Medicare. There's no, there's no government assistance. There's no nothing. So if you were a widow without a son or your sons or daughters refused to help you, you would die. And they're looking at you going, how can you let the one who gave you life Go off into the sunset because you want your own comfort. Take care. It doesn't mean that they have to have a Rolls Royce. It doesn't mean they need a Gucci bag. But what it does mean is make sure their necessities are taken care of because that's what a godly son or daughter would do. I didn't say you need to make yourself bankrupt. So this is a common question. He is continually giving tons of money to his mom, his sister, his cousin. She is continually cutting tons of checks to her dad or whatever it is. And he's just a deadbeater. She's a deadbeater, whatever it is. Can I tell you, you need to guard your own personal life. But as a couple, if you are married, you also need to go, how can we help those that are in need first in our home before we go out and do all these other things? This is where we are. You don't have to cut checks and, and, and hurt yourself on a regular basis. But can I tell you, if, if my mom or my dad is hungry, there's a lot of times I can look and go, you know what, maybe I don't need to go to the beach right now. Maybe I can assist them. However, if my own kids are starving and I have nothing and my dad keeps going, hey, can I have some more money? You only gave me 3000 this month. You know what? No, that doesn't work the same way. But ask yourself, am I being a good son? Am I being a good daughter? According to the scriptures for those who need. Do not let a widow under 60 be taken into the number. <sighs> okay. I know we're getting upset at Social Security because they're talking about jumping it up to what, 67? 68 in the near future? Europe riots. What here is scripturally saying Anybody under the age of 60, they shouldn't receive anything. That's a kicker. I'm, I'm not saying we're going to do all this. I'm just pointing out, when they're pointing at the widows, this is what's taking place. We have this idea of Christianity as borderline Jesus communism where I, I, I do bare minimal, if anything at all, and I deserve to have what everybody else has too. You have more than me, I want to cut, take what you have because I want it too. I don't want to do anything for it, I just want it. And I thought y'all were Christians, and I thought y'all loved God, and I thought y'all did this, and I thought y'all were going to be just like Jesus. 
That's a manipulation tactic. And the Bible clearly says here, if you're able to work, get a job. Well, I don't want to work. Well, neither do I. <laughs> Why? Do not let a widow under 60 be taken into the number, and not unless she has been a wife of one man. Listen to this. Well reported for good works, so she's not sitting at home. She volunteers. She's contributing whatever she can, even if it's a little bit. I'm going to get stoned. He, he, if she has brought up children, if she has lodged strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has relieved the afflicted, if she has diligently followed every good work. All right, we'll make it 2023. If she has been hospitable, if she has served at the church, if she has helped those who are in need, whether by cooking for them or helping for them, and if she has diligently followed what God has called for her life. Okay? But refuse the younger widows, for when they have begun to grow, wanting against Christ, they deserve to marry, having condemnation because they have cast off their first faith. And besides, <laughs> this is so mean, they, they learn to be idle, wandering about house to house, and not only idle, but also gossips and busybodies saying these things which are not. Therefore, I desire, get the younger ones married, make them have kids, and give no opportunity to the adversary to speak reproachedly. This doesn't sound like a lot of the ideals of church that we hear about today. This isn't, how do I say this? It's not everybody gets what you want because you want it. I find it weird that right here at the beginning, <laughs> they put criterias on who they distribute things to. If you're not going to be part of the church body, if you're not going to serve with your talents, gifts, or whatever it is, then why should the church give you its resources, is what it's saying. That's harsh for today. Pastor Allen, we used to have a food ministry here and, and you know, hopefully get it back up running again, but the reality is, is that there was a lot of people that, we would, that would come up on a Wednesday, grab a bunch of food, and then bail. And then he would say, hey, I'm giving you, mind you, the church is buying it. The church is stocking it. Our people are working it. Hey, why don't you guys come to church? Oh, I go to your church. When? I was there like two Easter's ago. So then we had this conversation. Hey, we want you to get involved in church. If it's not us, it's somebody else. Great. Get involved in church. Get connected to your church. Grow spiritually with God. That's what we're here for. How dare you tell me what I should, shouldn't be doing? Really? Well, then we'll just stop. I can't believe you Christians. You call yourselves a Christians. Always got a string attached, huh? We never said you had to give money. We just told you to get involved into a church. There's plenty of resources out there if you don't want to do that, but if you're going to use the church's resources, contribute. 
Well, I don't have money. No one's asking you to always give money. But what do you have? What do you have? Do you have time? Can everybody stick your arms out for a second? Can you pull your right one in? Okay. Can you pull your left one in? There you go. All of you just drove a lawnmower. Every single one of you guys can do that. You can cut grass. Maybe you can make phone calls. Maybe you can connect with people. Maybe you can help those in need by calling them and encouraging them. Maybe you can reach out to somebody. In fact, Corinthians 12 tells us there's a whole host of gifts and talents that they have in the body of Christ. And what he's saying here is not being mean, but going, hey, there's a place for you beyond just a handout. Where am I at? Okay. The twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should give, leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out amongst yourself seven good men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over the business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer in the ministry of the word. All right. Let's give a recap. A lot of pastors will use this verse to say that they shouldn't serve. Complete faults. We are called to serve. We are servants by nature, is who we're supposed to be. Our leader, Jesus, gets on his knees and washes his disciples' feet. And now we break off into two groups. A, the pastor should just stay down there. Or B, we exalt our pastor where he doesn't do anything. Both fundamentally wrong. Jesus washes his disciples' feet. And can anybody tell me what's the phrase he uses? I did this as an example for you to do. So as a pastor, we serve as an example to empower you for the work of the ministry. And I don't care how big your pastor gets or how big your church gets. Any pastor who is fundamentally unwilling to humble themselves to serve anyone is not being a godly man. We are born as servants. Now we flip it. In this context, they have a choice to make. Sure, we can do all of this. And we can deal with the widows. But if I deal with the widows and I deal with the poor, that means I can't be praying and seeking God's will for the organization. So what do you want? And, and we see this today. I want my pastor broke and, and poor and working nonstop. That makes him humble. It's good for him, builds character. <laughs> And over here, we look at it and go, oh, no, I don't want to do any of that stuff. That's, that's beneath me. That's somebody else's job. What we're supposed to be doing as leaders is this. 
is we're supposed to be dedicating our lives to the ministry of the gospel and getting a visual picture of what God is wanting to do as an organization and empowering each and every member of the body to fulfill their own individual piece of that pie. But what happens in churches across the world is this, is that the pastor is continually doing all of these things. He is unable to focus on the bigger picture at hand. And since he is, or is unable to focus at the bigger picture at hand, then they are unable to continually empower you for your work of the ministry. And so what happens is that you get upset because you're not being used, but you're unwilling to be used <laughs> because you want him to do it. And then you get mad because you're not being used. We'll go somewhere else. And, and, and what, I'm, what I'm dealing with today in this passage right now is this, is that our roles as believers are to serve one another. And one of the greatest ways our pastors can serve our church is by spending time with God about our organization so that we can be fulfilled as individual believers. My job as pastor is not to say, you do all of this so I can go play golf. I don't play golf because I'm horrible at golf. My job as a pastor is not to empower you to do all the work so that I can go play Xbox, so I can go on lavish vacations. No. My role is to continue to be seeking God's face, going, God, what is it that you want to see happen? But then there's a double-sided coin to this because the, the apostles didn't have a meeting and go, I perceived by the Spirit that there is a need in the church. With the widows, let us gather together. No, what happened is that somebody said, hey, I think we have a need with these widows. We should do something about it. And the apostle said, we're on it. No, the apostle goes, what do you want to do about it? Well, they need to get done. Pick seven guys, get it done. I love this answer because as Christians... When God places a need inside of our hearts, he also empowers you to carry the vision for that need. What's not supposed to happen is I have a burden for something and then I go, you do it. You carry my burdens now. No. Can I tell you, if you have a burden to see new life grow in, in, in outreach, Tell me about it, and tell me what you want to do about it. And I will pray about it, and we will gather people together with like-mindedness and go, do it. Be empowered. Pastor, I think we should help the poor here. Tell me about it. What is that we're going to be doing? Let's pray about it. Let's see what God's doing in it, and let's empower other people like you to go and do it. But what will never happen is, Pastor, I have a, a, a passion for the homeless. Great. So I think, Pastor, you should go out every Friday night and go feed the homeless. I, I, I didn't agree to that. If you are here in this church, it is because God put you in this church because there's a need that you can feel in this community. And if I feel your need... I'm doing you wrongly. 
because my job is to empower you according to the word for the work of the ministry. And if I'm continually doing all of your passions and all of your dreams, what I'm doing is I'm taking away your divine opportunity to connect with your passions for the presence of God. Ministry is not this. I like to preach. It's fun. I I'll sometimes like to play the piano. And if somebody's a piano player, take my job. I'll, be, I'll give it to you happily. I'm here to serve a need. And once somebody shows up and says, that's my dream, you got it. I don't need to preach. I used to. And then I realized, man, I don't have to do this every day. One thing I need to do is to empower you for what God's called you to do. Can I tell you something? I didn't create you. And I didn't call you. And I didn't design you. Therefore, there's no reason why I can tell you what you are created for. There's great counselors. There's great tools online that can maybe spur something on. But if you come to me and say, Pete, I need you to tell me my dreams, tell me my visions, tell me my passions, I can't do that. I, I, I'm not Joseph. But what I can do is tell you, pray about it. It's not a cop-out. I didn't create you. He did. But one thing I do know without a shadow of a doubt is this, is that if we continue our lives not fulfilling the passions that God has for us, we will find ourselves with idle hands dealing with complaints and dealing with frustrations. When we get frustrated and we've got complaints, we will automatically go into strife and confusion and destruction. God has called you for great things. Well, Pete, I don't preach. That's fine. Can you do this? <laughs> Pete, I don't like kids. That's fine. Can you help work in the sound booth? Oh, nice. Pete, I don't, I, I, don't, I don't like people. That's great. We have some uh, wonderful administration things. What are you good at? What do you like to do? What is a talent that you have that you can give back to God? Maybe you can clean. We always need that. Maybe you can cook. There's always people that are hungry. Maybe you don't like people at all, but you're great with computer design. Great. We'll help you with website and graphics and arts and all kinds of stuff. Maybe you want to teach. Great. We'll get you to start a small group. Well, your talents, your gifts, and your abilities continually are needed in this place. How do I know that? Because you're here. And we need you. For years, we've had people like Matt show up and weedied. That was a gift. He was using his time and talents to serve this house. We've got people like Ken Smith who are always up here serving. And then we'll go and build stuff because Elaine and EJ tell him to. <laughs> you know, I don't think, and I could be wrong, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think Mr. Ken has this innate desire to come up here and preach on a regular basis. In fact, he stays as far away from the, look at it, as far away from the podium as he possibly can. But he's got talents and he's got gifts. 
I am not a, a, a craftsman at all. At all. But he is. You know, you've got people like Pastor Allen who are unbelievably great with administration, especially numbers. I don't know what your gifts are. And maybe you don't either. But you've got a good, strong back and you can go and help serve. We've had Nathan up here on summer, this summer serving his heart out in a hundred plus weather, cutting grass and doing anything else that myself or my dad would randomly come up with. Maybe you've got a backhoe and you can dig out a trench. I don't know. What, what is it that you're good at? Maybe you just want to sit in the front office and greet people. Talk to Pastor Marsha, not me. That's just not my bag. You want to be a substitute teacher, see Ira. There are so many areas. If you cannot find a place at New Life or New Life Academy for you to serve, it's because you're being lazy. And you cannot say, they just don't, they don't give me opportunities. The world is your oyster, my friend. <laughs> Tell me what you're good at. I'll figure it out. But it's a lot easier for me to blame somebody else for my problems. But one thing I can tell you this is that God has given you the opportunity to connect with each other by using your gifts, using your talents. And I believe that with all my heart that as I pour myself out for his kingdom's sake, I feel more fulfilled than I ever would. But even when I wasn't getting paid as a pastor, I still wanted to serve the church. Because my heart is to help. Last story and I'll shut up. I moved to Fort Myers, Florida back in 20, 2007. I got a job at Bank of America. And my pastor called me and said, hey, what is it that you want to do at the church? Not paid, but as a volunteer. What do you need? He goes, I've got plenty of options. What do you need? Okay. Well, Pastor, to be honest with you, I'll do anything that you want me to do. I just don't want to serve in kids' ministry. And he said, okay, cool. We need you in kids' ministry. And I laughed, and he didn't. And I went, I got to pray about this. So I told him, I got to pray about this. So, I went home, I prayed, and I'm like, how dare him? I told him the one, the one thing, the one thing, and that's all he came up with was working kids. And then I realized the issue was a lot more about me than it was him. Because I've got talents where I can talk and I can be funny and I can be goofy and I can be administrative and I can do all the things. And that's why I've been able to work in every area of ministry and thrive is because it's what I can do. And so I thought, then it's my problem. So I called him up, and I'm like, I really don't want to do this, but if this is what you want me to do, I'll serve. He goes, great. You're doing two Sundays a month. Back in the day, we used to have what was called Willie George. We were still doing that. Royal Rangers and Missionettes. Sunday mornings, Sunday nights, and Wednesday nights. Yes, sir, I'm here to serve. So I did it. This, the kid's pastor came to me and goes, hey, I am stepping out and I'm going to launch another church and I need you to oversee our kid's department. That's what God wants. The next day, 
we had 100 volunteers. The next day, we had 45 volunteers. It's now with my kid's department. But you know what I said? God, if you have ordained my footsteps and you have opened doors, I will walk through whatever door you have opened up with a smile on my face because you will make things work. So I did. And I would look back at that time in kids' ministry and go, it was one of the best experiences of my life. Watching young eight, nine-year-olds sobbing at the altar with their hands raised because no one had ever told them that they could connect with God. And so I took the time to show them how to connect with God. Some of them are currently in ministry today, serving God. Their parents didn't serve God. They would drop them off on a Sunday and say deuces and drive off. And I took it serious. It wasn't babysitting. It was ministry. Before all that, I cleaned toilets. I actually paid to clean their toilets. It wasn't grunting. It was ministry. I was cleaning God's toilets. And I was going to make it right. Did I always have the best attitude? No. Not always. But I can tell you with all my heart that ministry isn't the pulpit. It's in the service. You are all called to ministry. Every last one of you. So now that you're all called, let's figure out what ministry you're called for. And by us, you and God. And then when you get the answers, come see us. We'll have a great conversation. I'll buy you dinner. We can walk through it. Be McDonald's, but I'll still buy you dinner. <laughs> or CeCe's Pizza, your choice. God placed you here on purpose for purpose. So let's use our purposes. Amen? God, we thank you that as we wrap this session up today that you continue to open our eyes to see what you have, ears to hear what you want us to hear. Connect us to your plans and your purposes. God gave us a life, God, of service to one another and a service to your kingdom. And we thank you and we give you all the praise and honor. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Love you guys. See y'all next week. We'll, we'll talk about Stephen, I think. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Have a great week.